everyone. Thank you for being here. Just want to say thank you for, to Keith Collins for giving me the excuse that I was really looking for but could not find. How to say what needs to be said about such a prodigious issue in a very short period of time. But of course, now Keith has given me the way to do that. Everyone has had lunch. That was your lunch break. That was your lunch break. So as we approach 1 o'clock, 1.30, no reason to have to be looking at your tummies. No growling, no wonder, you know. You should not have put a roast in the oven, you know, whatever. You've had lunch. And looking to some of you, you had lunch and dinner. And a couple of you had breakfast. Ray, how much did you have? You resemble that remark. Are we on tape yet? Oh, lovely. I don't mind, it's just you wonder, all those who are not here this morning, look what you're missing. We told you to be here. Well, let me begin this way. I want to begin by thanking you for being with us. I want to say thank you for your consistency your loyalty, your commitment to God as exemplified through your being here regularly on Sunday mornings. You know, it's always the burden and the passion of those who stand in this pulpit on this morning for this purpose, that we are by the Spirit's anointing faithful to God's desire and purpose for us. Because you see what has, is happening is this. <clears throat> God gives the pastors of the church the most precious gift that anyone can have. And those of you who are parents and grandparents will understand what I'm about to say. Those who care for your children and oversee them and train them and watch out for them and protect them and lead them and provide for them, in your mind, those are very precious people because they are handling the most precious thing you have. Amen? That's how we feel. And so when we stand here on Sunday mornings to share the Word of God, I know how I feel about it. And so I will speak about myself. That's not to deny the others. This becomes for me 
a great strain of burden. Why? Not because I've never talked before people before. No, I've been doing this since I'm 19 and I'm 72. Because we have been given the most valuable commodity to share with the most valuable people for the praise and honor of the most valuable being. Thank you for being here regularly. Amen. So please give God a hand as you are here together. This morning, Bible Summer Jam begins. And do I need to click this or do you all put it up there regularly automatically? And we're going to begin to have a series of summer sermons, which, as Keith has already said, purpose of which is to give us in a very real way as we look at the Bible an understanding that many simply do not have. Have you ever read a passage and you wonder, what is that all about? How many of you, literally, literally, how many of you know the immense significance of Leviticus? If we were to ask you, come up here and explain, really, the immense significance of the book of Leviticus, how many of you could do that? You can do it. You can raise your hand. Yeah, Keith can do it. If Keith can't do it, let's go home. I think you could do it, Bill. So what does that tell us? What it tells us typically is if we don't know that and if we haven't understood it and if it doesn't find its place, in the continuity of the revelation and work of God through the Bible, then typically what that means is I'm going to what? Skip reading this because I don't understand why it's there. I can't figure out where it's going, where it came from. It's per I don't know. It's just way beyond. So let's skip that and go to another book that I can <clears throat> easily understand. So let's go to something like a Ruth or an Esther. Wonderful books. What do those have to do? Those two have the same significance at least in a continuing revolutionary, revolutionary, revelatory work, the same significance as Leviticus or all the other books. So, you know, you get this person, Ruth, she's a Moabitess. What, what does that mean? She becomes an Israelite. <gasps> Where's the connection? What does all this mean? So you see, and the purpose of the Bible jam, as Keith has said, is to acquaint us with the Bible in such a way that we will really know that the Bible has a comprehensive theme, a comprehensive theme from God a central controlling theme, a theme that begins in Genesis 1 and 2 and a theme which is consummated, brought to its fullest fruition, if you would, 
and Revelation 21 and 22. And everything between those two chapters is the outworking of God and the ministry of God to take that which begins in Genesis 1 and 2 all the way to the end in Revelation 21 and 22. And in the middle, what we have is that work of God, of how he does that through various revelations, promises, covenants, nations, his people, other people. How he does that in the New Testament in a fulfilling way in the incarnation. All of it is about one theme. All of it. And if we don't see the Bible that way, we will never gain from its content what the Holy Spirit fully wants us to have. So you see, the Bible is one book written by one author about one subject having one purpose delivered to one people. That's what the Bible is. It's a book, and it's the only book from God, about God, and for God. That's what the Bible is. And so with that in mind, what we want to begin to do is to see how all of this work of God as begun in Genesis all the way through to the end in Revelation 22, if you would, hangs together. Because there is a thread of continuity and consistency that begins in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation 22. It is an unbroken thread which is introduced in the first two chapters and then which is, if you would, developed and expanded until its culmination at the end. So we're going to look, use Vaughn Roberts' book, God's Big Story, and we're going to use it as a guide, just as a guide for us, and God's big picture, and it's going to help us see an overview of each of these areas of revelation that we have in the Bible as he has broken them out. So this is the way he's broken them out. We don't have any, dis, uh, uh, any difficulty with it, but this is just what he's done. So the pattern of the kingdom. In the Garden of Eden, we see the world as God designed it to be. God's people, Adam and Eve, live in God's place, the garden, under his rule as they submit to his word. And to be under God's rule in the Bible is always to enjoy his blessing. It is the best way to live. God's original creation shows us a model of his kingdom as it was meant to be. And so what you're going to see here, he emphasizes two things in this paragraph. What two things do you see emphasized? We see the person of God emphasized, and we see the kingdom emphasized. And in fact, do you have your little uh, handout, this little green-looking thing? And if you look at the eight breakdowns or the eight chapters of the book, hopefully all of us will have a book. I can hardly see this thing. <laughs> the pattern of the kingdom 
The perished kingdom, the promised kingdom, the partial kingdom, the prophesied kingdom, the present kingdom, the proclaimed kingdom, and the perfect king, perfected kingdom. So what Vaughn Roberts has done, <laughs> he's taken one of those major themes of the Bible and has set the entire structure and the revelation and the outworking of that structure into the pattern that he sees here, which is the kingdom of God. So I'm hoping this morning that as we do an overview of Genesis 1 to 2 and fly through some of this, I'm not hoping that we understand everything about these two chapters. That can't happen in this short of a period. But hopefully we can take out a few pieces and bits of Genesis 1 and 2 and begin to see what God introduces in those two chapters as relating to the various other chapters, activities, people, circumstances throughout the rest of the Bible to see that what is presented in chapters 1 and 2 in Genesis that what is presented and introduced and begun in chapters 1 and 2 and 2 in Genesis is the theme that God maintains and continues throughout the entire Bible until he brings that Genesis 1 and 2 theme or purpose to its full consummation or fruition in Revelation 21 and 22. That's how we need to see our Bible. Why? Because that's how God has given us our word, uh, his word. So let's begin this way. Let's look at least initially and make sure that we get it initially about the primary revelation of Genesis 1 and 2, even though we haven't yet read from Genesis 1 and 2. So as we begin, let's remember that we're not the only ones who are called upon and who should be viewing the Bible as one comprehensive, unified presentation. This is how Jesus saw it. He saw the scriptures as a comprehensive unit. Everything in the beginning, announcing him and then pointing to him and anticipating him and promising him. That's how he saw the Bible. You remember in Luke 24, 27, after the crucifixion, two disciples are leaving Jerusalem and they're going back home to Emmaus. And they're, they're walking like this. You know, they're, they're downtrodden. Their hearts are broken. They are just absolutely dismayed. Their entire hope of everything, not only here on earth but in heaven itself, has been dashed because the man in whom they understood and they thought and they believed everything Everything is contained in this man. Every hope, he's dead. It's finished. It's all over. You can understand how they felt. And as they walked, Jesus appeared. Now walk with him. Hey, what's wrong? What y'all upset about? Well, all the things that have been happening in these last couple of days. What things? See, Jesus didn't say, I don't know. He just said, what things? He's drawing out of them. We had hoped. And so Jesus began to explain. And in Luke 24, 27, and in verse 44, very much the same thing. He says this. Beginning with Moses, where does Moses begin? 
the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's Moses. Beginning in Genesis 1-1. Beginning in Genesis 1-1. Beginning with Moses. And all the prophets, and in verse 44, he adds the Psalms. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So you see, what Jesus is saying here is this. Essentially, Genesis 1 and 2 is God setting the stage in language that may not be clear to us at that point, but is setting the stage and revealing his purpose and his people and his means and everything to gain his purpose and to bring it to fullness. And Jesus Christ is the center of all of that. He is the center of all of that. So therefore, our Bible is the one story of God. As he begins his purpose in Genesis 1 and 2 and continues it all the way to the end in Revelation 21 and 22. You see, this is what our salvation is all about. This is why we are here today. We are here today not because we receive Christ. That's not what you're here today. We are here today not because we needed to be saved. We are here today for one simple reason. God's purpose, his plan, his eternal desire was initiated in Genesis 1 and 2. And we are here today as the continuing unfolding revelation of what God began then. And we on earth are the ones who are in this community personally and corporately being the living display of all the truth that God has to display through his people that was presented in, if you would, seed form in Genesis 1 and 2. That's why we're here. That's why we got saved, you see. That's why we were born again. We were never born again because we needed to be born again. It has nothing to do with us. We were born again because God's great desire to have a people through whom he would display the wondrous glory of his own person and as a character. As stated in Genesis 1 and 2. And we are that people who have been foreknown, Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world. God had each one of you and me personally in his mind And he decided where you would live, what era, what time period you would live in, what race you would be, whether you'd be male or female, all of that. And he put us into the world and scattered us as seeds. And then he sent his Holy Spirit into the world on the day of Pentecost to begin to gather us into his purpose so we would be the visible 
manifestation of what he wanted to do and what he will do in Genesis 1 and 2. So let's look at some of Genesis 1 and 2 and read from some of the verses here. I think we're going to have some of that on the board. Oh, well, we'll skip a little bit. Let's start in Genesis 1, chapter 1. Why? Because you see, in Genesis 1 and 2, God has presented, as I already said, in seed form all that is to come. In my front yard, there is a very large oak tree. By now, it's about 150, 60 years old, Scott, somewhere around there. By now, it has already produced 42,872 and a half leaves. That was last week. It has enormous branches and roots. It would take two or three people holding hands together to go around the trunk of it. What we're seeing here is the manifestation, the outworking of everything that was in the original acorn. If you throw away the acorn, you ain't got the tree. So we want to be careful not to throw away or dismiss or sideline the acorn of Genesis 1 and 2. Because if we do, it doesn't mean you're not being saved, but it means that there's going to be a whole lot that you ain't going to get. And you will be limiting the effect of the Word of God in your life. What does the first verse of Genesis say? You know, we're pretty good, aren't we? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. You know, remember all that? And in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and we are moving through. Well, that's not how we're supposed to read the Bible. What does the first verse say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I stand on this comment as accurate. This is the most fundamentally significant, astounding, fathomable, unfathomable verse in the entire Bible. Why? Because there is not another verse in the Bible that is there apart from that verse. There is not another thing that God does has done, is, and will do apart from that verse being there. Therefore, I say without any equivocation, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis is the most significant verse in the entire Bible. And it presents to us, I think, the basic information that we need and knowledge of God that we need to have. Certainly there is elaboration. And you know, this sermon should just be about verse 1. I mean, that's really how we need to do this, brother. Verse 1 this week, verse 2 next week, verse 3 the week before, I mean week after. So let me, let me rush through this. It's a very difficult thing for me to do, but I'm going to rush through it. In the beginning... This is a Hebrew phrase, and it means this. Before 
anything was, God was. Before anything was, God was. Now, there's a lot to say. You know, I get a tussle, but I'm going to be talking about that. No, I'm going to try to stay on track here and not follow too many herds of rabbits. You see, in this phrase, we have not the reason from God, for God's existence. We don't have the proof of God's existence. God doesn't need to give reasons and proofs, although that's not incorrect to do that. You see some of that in the Bible. But God begins this way. Here I am. Right? He begins by what? Just being there. In the beginning, God. In this verse, we have a revelation of God's self-existence. Self-existence. What does that mean? That there has never been, I'm going to use the word time, and even relating this to God, it's an incorrect term because in God there is no such thing as time. He has created the time when he created the universe in order for us to live within a context. This is not for God. So try to figure it out and understand there is in God no time. What does that mean? I don't get it, but maybe somebody, John, are you here this morning? Where's our phys physics man? Where are you, John? I know you're here. You can, can you explain that? Good. <laughs> Ellie was hoping you would say, uh-uh, don't touch that one. <laughs> Even with his work in a Ph.D. in physics, he still can't get it. God's self-existence. Now, what does that mean for us? I don't know if you've thought about it, but this has enormous repercussions because you see everything that comes after that verse is the result of what this eternal, ever-existing, self-existing, everlasting, never-beginning, never-ending God says and does. That means that everything about everything is related to and is responsible to and accountable to this one being only. Amen? See, this is why those who call themselves atheists, by the way, there is no such thing as an atheist. When the Bible says there isn't, what does that mean? When God himself says there is no such thing as an atheist, Romans 1, 19 and 20. When the Bible says that, what does that mean? So I say when they say they're atheists. Why do people not want to believe in God? Well, I'm sure there are a number of reasons, but behind I think all of it rests this understanding. I am going to be held accountable one day before this God. You see, the proof that God exists is in this room. Look around. Now, some of you may think you came out of a tree or slime. And some of us may smell and act like that. But we came here as the purposeful 
careful, planned wisdom and timing of God. And we will all return to him and stand before this one. He is in the beginning. So when Genesis says in the beginning, it ties together and it presents an enormous revelation of who this God is. So when we read these words, just don't read them very quickly. Read them and contemplate them. Think about them. Well, what does this in the beginning have to do with Jesus? Because we said Luke 24, 27 in verse 44, Jesus says, hey, that talked about me. There's a prophecy in Micah toward the end of the Old Testament. And he's talking about the promise of the coming Messiah, the one who will save the world and who will fulfill God's purpose. And the prophecy that he gives, but you, O Bethlehem, meaning out of Bethlehem this one will come, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, kingdom, a king is coming whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Now, those are terms which mean this king is a king who is coming from a, a non-time time. This is in the beginning king. He's talking about in the beginning God. That's the king that he's talking about here when he's using these terms. Remember later in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, the wise men. Why do we say three wise men? We don't know how many wise men. The three gifts. We don't know how many wise men. Could have been two wise men. Could have been 32. We don't know. But the wise men came to what? Bethlehem. Remember that? First Jerusalem. Then Why? Because they saw something in the sky. And they knew this prophecy. And so Herod says, hey, 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 let me know where this king, kingdom man is being born. I'd love to come worship him. And so someone explains to Herod, how do we know who this king is? How do we know? And they quote from this passage. So you see, Genesis 1, 1 begins to inform us in so many, many, many places about this eternal God and his eternal purpose and how it's being worked out. So when we read something like a Micah, we read something like a Matthew, let's not read it in isolation from anything else and disconnect it from this, that, and the other, but just read it this. But let's read it within, under the canopy, under the canopy of Genesis 1 and 2. Because Micah and Matthew and all the rest lie under the canopy of God's original intention. Remember in Revelation 22, 13, it's talking about the return of the Lord Jesus. Look how he references himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the first and the last, the what? The beginning. Okay. Have you ever connected in the beginning with in the beginning in Genesis. No, I know. Huh. And so what we see here is the very first verse of the Bible 
is being picked up and fulfilled in the very last chapter of the Bible. What a continuity. What a comprehensive revelation that God gives us of himself. Now, there's a whole lot more in this verse. Don't have time to talk about it. Did you list these in the outline? Hmm? So, Evan has listed a whole lot. God is unique, you know, other than sovereign, powerful, self-giving, personal, good and wise. So much. There's so much more there. That's a, this is a sermon. This is a series of sermons in itself. Well, after we leave verse 1, I created everything. Then verses 2 to 25 go into the details of the creation, correct? In Genesis chapter 1. 2 to 25 go into the details. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. You remember that. All the details. I don't know if we have to read those. Even in the way those days are given and even in the relationship of the two sets of the six days, there is a major revelation about God, but I can't go into that. What I'm getting at and the reason I said that is everything in those two chapters is a revelation from God of truth and reality. This is not a fairy tale. This is not mythology. This is a record by God of what actually he did. How can I reconcile it with other natural facts? I cannot and simply I won't. Why? Because for me to try to spend my time in reconciling it with what about this and what about that is going to miss the point. The point is not how can it be reconciled, but the point is what of God will I glean from this and will I receive from him? That's the reason these books are important. And so the devil would certainly want you to spend most of your time arguing these other issues. Paul says, don't spend time with what? Foolish speculations. You ain't going to figure it out. What you want to do is glean from the jewels of God in these two chapters and the rest of it. So we come to verse 26, Genesis 1:26. Now, this is a verse I've never mentioned before, so it'll be brand new for all of you. It's a verse that... I just read yesterday, and I'm still trying to figure it out. We said this, that Genesis 1 and 2 present in seed form the entire purpose of God in creation. Everything you need to know. May I repeat that? What word did I just say? Everything you need to know is in those two verses. And next week, Pastor Keith will talk about what happened and talk about another aspect of that. But he's not going to talk about it in isolation from chapters 1 and 2, I don't think, huh? No. And so here is the explanation. Why, why do you do this? What you doing, God? 
why do you do, why, why, you know, why the light and the stars and the animals? Why? Verse 26 tells you. It is the single purpose statement in the Bible that sums up absolutely everything about my life and its purpose. It is the single purpose in the Bible that absolutely sums up everything about our lives and its purpose. There is nothing about our lives that is outside of that purpose statement in God's view. There may be a whole lot out of our lives, but not in God's purpose and God's view. So what is verse 26 saying? All of a sudden... God is doing this. He did this. He did that. He did that. He said that. But then all of a sudden in verse 26, everything changes. And what does he say? Let us make man in. Do we have that on the board? Is that what that is? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. I want to stop right there at that point. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Why are you here? Why are we here today? Why are you and I here on earth? Why? We have one reason to be here. Everything has been created for one reason. God put it all together in order to have a people in whom his person and his character would be on full and mighty and blazing display that we would be individually and corporately the true, accurate picture, display, copy, or as God puts it, the image of God, which means this. That everything about us as believers, whether we like it or not or know it or not, is making a statement concerning the person and character of God. If you were saved, you were saved because God determined you would be an image bearer. And that as a result of your salvation and continuing into the end, all the way through eternity, every thought, word, and deed, every attitude, every desire, every action, every reaction, every personal, private, corporate, at work, going down the street, buying your groceries, driving. I shouldn't have said that one. Mm. Everything about our lives as a believer, whether you want it to or not, is a statement about something of the person and work and character of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. This is why Jesus says every word. Every action
every hurt feeling and how you handle it, every frustration and what you do with it, any opportunity to forgive or not to forgive, how you're going to act, every temptation to do or to think or to say or to go, whatever, everything has to do with being the accurate truthful, clear, consistent, compelling images of this God. This is what at stake. This is what is at stake here. And what is that image? If we were to ask you, what is the single most significant and all-ruling and consuming truth about God? What is, if you had to write one thing, I remember one time I gave a test. I used to teach English. I like giving tests. <laughs> and occasionally I'd write the question and only had one answer. How many of you like many Questions and many multiple questions, uh, answers on those, don't you? Why? Because at least if you can guess, hopefully you'll get enough of them right. But how many of you wanted a test that had one question and only one acceptable answer? How many of you want that? What kind of a test? How do you study for that? You either do or you don't know it. Right? It's just there. What is the answer for the most significant, most fundamental, most all-controlling passion and truth about God. What is it? His love? Nope. His mercy? No. What is it? We said this before, you should know this. His triunity. This is the most unique revelation about, if you would, I'll put it this way, Christian God in all religions. There is no other revelation even near this. That in the one being of God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Remember Deuteronomy 6, 4? In the one being of God, there exists three equal, distinct, Divine persons. Each one of whom is fully God within himself but not by himself. That these three persons of God are in an eternal relationship of loving fellowship expressed through their particular roles. Now, don't ask me to repeat that. I can't. You just have to get the tape. There's nothing else like this. This is what God is. This is what Jesus came to manifest. This is what God is manifesting among us as his believers. This is the place of the glory of God. Who God is in his person, character, 
and work. Because the reason I don't say and, 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 because all three are connected irrevocably. Who God is in his person determines his character. His character determines his person. His person and character determine the work. The work is a revelation of his character and person, etc., etc. It's all tied up. So the, the Bible says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is what? One. This is why every once in a while in the Bible you get these kind of funny statements. Remember in 6 8 of Isaiah, Isaiah's in the temple, he sees the Lord. And the man on the throne, did you notice that there's a man on the throne? Somebody's sitting on the throne. And he says, who will go for us? Who's us? Who are you talking about? God references himself in plurality because he is a plurality of persons in such unity that he is one in his being as God. So how does this relate to us? You see, the history of the Old Testament is God's movement to initiate this revelation in his people and to move it forward. And we'll look next week why we're having to move anything forward, why it just didn't happen. Move it forward to its completion. And maybe you begin to see now something about the necessity and the glory of the incarnation. Because, see, everything in the Old Testament is there in types and shadows, and it's not clear. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if he said, just, it's not that. It's, a, it's, it's like little puzzle pieces that you just get bits and pieces of and you're putting it together and you begin to see something but you're not sure what it is and where does this one go. But then all of a sudden one day comes a man and he stands before us and he is a completed puzzle of God. <gasps> and you say, oh, oh, that's what all of these little puzzle pieces meant. That's how they all hold together. That's how they were all connected. They were connected showing us that this, in this man, everything of God's revelation and person and character and work is to be manifested in us. Oh, now I understand where that little, how many of you have ever had a 500-piece puzzle and tried to put it together without the picture? You're strange. <clears throat> now, Sherry, I'm not going to say who, I mean, shoot, uh, lady, we're not going to say who. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I got to have the picture. And once you had the picture, you see, you look at this puzzle piece, you say, oh, Sandy, I see where that goes. And then, oh, I, I got this one. And Tony, that one, that, that's like reading the Bible. Once we have the picture, we begin to be able to assemble, if you would, the puzzle. How many of you want to put a puzzle piece together? How many of you do this, what I do? I find all the edges first. How many of you do that first? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Yeah, we, found, we find the borders, the boundaries. Genesis 1-2 is the, is the boundary. Everything else is contained inside of it, don't you see? So don't leave the boundary off and just kind of like that. Let's get into the puzzle. You're not going to do well with this puzzle if you don't have the boundary in place. You see, why 
what is the truth of God's triunity? It, it comes up over and over again. But this is what Paul is after in Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> it's this revelation that God began in the beginning to reveal through us, his people, let us make man in our image. And Paul is elucidating some of this imagery and understanding of the Trinity. And, and so he says in chapter 1, is in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6, he talks about the Father's purpose to have a people. Why does God want a people? Why does God promise Abraham a people? Why does God bring a people to Sinai? Why does God save a people and take them into the promised land? Why does God create a nation? Why does God protect the nation? Why does God do this over and over again? Because it will be a man, they are the manifestation of Genesis 126, a people in whom my image. This begins to explain what in the world is all this stuff about? All of it is about Genesis 1.26, which is God's means of doing, uh, revealing who he is from the very beginning of beginnings, of beginnings, of beginnings, of beginnings. Everything. So 120, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, God's grand purpose. 7 to 12, that purchase, a purpose is purchased by Christ. The Father's purpose, the Son's purchase, and verses 13 and 14, the Spirit's application of that purpose. So you see a revelation of the Trinity there. But you see, when Paul does that, he goes back into eternity before there was creation, before the worlds began. Why? Because he starts to explain it, and he can only explain it <clears throat> in the same way and in the same context that Genesis 1 gives it to us in the beginning and going through it like that. He pushes all that away and says, this is that, this is here because of that. Now, let's look at the other verses here, 27 to 28. Remember, you all had lunch. I, t I told you not to eat. 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said, I'm going to jump through some verses here. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, hev uh, of the heavens and ever over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And that, can happen on, and that can happen only through the union of a man and a woman. How did I get that there? Then the Lord formed the man out of dust and the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is in 2.7. We just skipped a little bit here. Oh, I see what I did. Okay. And he talks about what he's going to do in 126. In 127, he does it. In 128, he gives some ways about God, the man fulfilling that mandate of his image bearing. And then we go to chapter 2, verse 7, all the way to the end is what he did. And so we insert that between 26 and 27. Does that make sense to you? I'm not sure. And so verse 2, 7, chapter 2. Then the Lord formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 18. Then God, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper for him, suitable for him. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What has God done? Well, he's created people. 
how can God manifest his image except in people? God is a plurality of persons. So first of all, he has to create someone of a similitude of himself who will be able in some way to manifest the persons of God. So he creates Adam. So here we have Adam before verse 18. He's alone. It's not good for Adam to be alone. Why? Because you see, a single person all alone cannot manifest people. What does people mean? What does peoples mean? It means fellowship. It means relationship. How many of you have had a fellowship and a relationship all by yourself with no one else? Some of you have, you know, and that's the problem. <laughs> For some of us, the only person really worthy of getting along with and the only one you can is yourself, right, Matt? You know how that works, you know? That's just the way it is. I don't need anybody else. Me, myself, and I, my ghost, my shadow, my spirit. All six of us are doing fine. God is a plurality. So why does he create two and says multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth? Why? Because in doing that, he is manifesting the glory of his triune personhood or his triune nature. And what is the essential character of that nature? God is love. There is a loving relationship and role filling within the Trinity among these three persons of God. And so that's what God is showing in the creation of Adam and Eve and moving forward, desiring that the earth will be filled. Why should the earth be filled? Because God is worthy of that, and he has created the creation in order that all the creation may be filled with his glory. Why a man and a woman? Well, you see, first of all, why does God create marriage? Marriage is to be the clearest and most compelling revelation. I don't think some of you heard that. Marriage is to be the clearest and most compelling revelation of who God is and how he is. Therefore, what is wrong with same-sex marriages? Oh, they're wrong. Okay, why are they wrong? Because they're not right. Okay, why are they not right? Because they're wrong. Oh, wow, sorry, I missed something here. They're wrong because they're not right. Because God said they're wrong. How do you know that? Well, I read Paul and I read Sodom and Gomorrah and I know they're wrong. And besides, I think it's disgusting. Is it true that God said they're wrong? You've not done a good job on this. You spent a whole time a few weeks ago, and then none of them answered this one. Is it true that the Bible says homosexuality is wrong? Is there anybody in here you don't see that? So the, the thing is, the Bible says it. Okay. Why is it wrong? Because God said it. Well, you know, why does God have the right to say that? Because he's the eternal creator. He's sovereign. Friends in Christ, God has the right and is not only the right but is compelled 
Sorry, I woke somebody up. I saw somebody jump on that, but I won't say who it was. He's not only the right, but he's compelled to tell us what to do and how to do it. Because everything is about himself. So why is same-sex marriage abhorrent to God? Why? Because God has established. This is how he's done it, so therefore it is. And what God has done is perfect. There cannot be any other way because everything that God does, what, is right and perfect, correct? Do you go with that? So there can't be another way because it would be imperfect. God has established and decreed that it will be a man and a woman together who will be in their relational fellowship of love and et cetera, all that that means will be the display of his image. This is why it is so dastardly destructive what Satan is doing in this arena. It's Satan. Don't you hear what Keith will talk about next week? Hath God said it should only be a man and a woman? <laughs> Don't you smell Smell it out. It's Satan wanting to destroy the purpose of God to image himself in a marriage of a man and a woman. Same thing for homosexuality. Same-sex marriage, homosexuality. What's wrong with homosexuality? Is there anything? We just said that. Why? Why is same-sex marriage wrong? Essentially so. Why did God create it a different way? It's to display the truth of himself. Any other way is a lie about himself. What's wrong with homosexuality, bestiality, etc., all the other alities? Because you see, they are a lie about the person and character and ministry of God himself. This is at what is at the base of Satan's attack. It has nothing to do with trying to undermine the democracy in which we live. That is not what this is about. It has nothing to do with anything except undermining the image and marring the image of God in God's people. Why was Adam made first? Remember in chapter 2, verse 7, and then Eve was made. Why? Why? It shows that Adam will be the leader and the woman will be the helper. Remember in verse 18. And so there is a movement in the church which says that the man and woman are equal are men and women equal? Yes and no. It depends on what you're talking about. Are they equal in status and standing and in being loved and accepted by God? Yes. But are they equal in their roles? No. No. A man is given to lovingly lead. And a woman is given to lovingly respectfully submit. <gasps> Why? Well, you see, this is all kink, and this is the way it came up, and all the men were doing this, and the women were... 
No. What does this have to do with? Why in this church are we a male leadership bunch of guys? Why? Because the Bible shows us that all of this leading and following and male and female and coming together husband and wife, all of this, you remember 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4 or 5, all of this has to do with what? Being the image of God. So why can't we just change and go with the culture and begin ordaining women as elders and letting them preach and lead along with the man? Why? Because in our minds we would be marring and lying about the person and character of our God has nothing to do with whether we think women are more intelligent. Certainly they're more intelligent. Ask my wife and ask Gina Collins and ask Rebecca May. Certainly they're more intelligent. They're more gifted in many ways. I can't even boil an egg. No, no, really. The women have so much over the men in so many ways. But God created us this way for his image-bearing purpose. So this is why you see moving through the Bible. There's just so much here. I can't even go into that aspect of it. Stay away. Why so much emphasis on unity? The unity of the brethren. Remember in Ephesians 1, I'm sorry, 4, 1 through 16, some marvelous passage about being one and not being blown around by all kind of doctrine so we can grow up into the unity of the one person, Jesus Christ, the unity of one man. Why such unity? Why is there such an emphasis in the Bible on unity and oneness? When Achan, you remember Achan after the battle of Jericho, Achan stuck some stuff under the carpet, and God in chapter 7 says, okay, the whole place, we're all in, in trouble here. All of you are going to be punished because of one man. And what, 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 let Achan say, you know what he does? No, if one hurts, all hurt. Why such unity? Why? What is the emphasis? What is the reason for all the emphasis of the unity? Why? What is it? Because it is a display of the unity of the persons of God. You see, church, everything is about, everything is for, everything is from God. It always introduced in Genesis 1 and 2. Two eight, and I'm, I'm moving along now. God creates a garden. Well, what does a garden have to do with anything? What's a garden? Why a garden? You see, the garden was the place where God and man would enjoy communion and fellowship. So you see the garden motif throughout the Bible, the planting, the garden, the land. The land, the land, the land, the land, the land, the land, the land. What is all this deal about a bunch of rocks? It is a shadow of him in whom we will, who is our place, in whom we will finally, forever, and fully fellowship with God. Do you get it? This promised land, this promised land, I'll give you land. Let's go back to land. Got to get out of the land. What is, who cares? Yes, God is saying that there is a place. And who is that place? 
Jesus Christ. That place is fulfilled in the New Testament. If you've ever read John 15, 1 through 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. Garden. He's talking about garden stuff here. Why the cross and the resurrection? Why? The cross and the resurrection is God's only means of fulfilling his purpose in his people. And we'll see next week why the cross and the resurrection is to the activity in Genesis chapter 3. It's all about one theme. God's passionate, purposeful pursuit to proclaim himself in us as people. Hmm. When will Genesis 1 and 2 be fulfilled? Fully fulfilled. Because you remember when Jesus, going to the cross the night that he was betrayed, he says to his followers, don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to a place, to prepare, I go to prepare what? A place for you. That where I am, you may be also. Jesus is our place. Look at how many in Christ, in him, through him, we have in the New Testament. He's the garden, if you would. When would this be fully consumed, I mean, uh, fully uh, fulfilled? This king, God's rule upon the earth, through this king who comes, for the establishment finally of his kingdom, What is the result? Where is it fulfilled? Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Faithful and true to what? To what he began in Genesis. It's true. And he's faithful to do it. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head many diadems, and he was, has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in the blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a, two sharp, a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. You see, the rule of God finally coming to conclusion and to fruition. He will tread down the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe is written and on his thigh the name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What God began in Genesis, he fulfills. And so let me read this, the result of the return of the king in Revelation 21 and 1 through 4. And when we read these verses, we read them under the umbrella and remembering Genesis 1 and 2. And here's what he said. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember the old earth? The first earth has passed away. 
All that God is doing in Genesis 20, Revelation 21 is redoing what he began in Genesis 1 and 2. He's recreating. He's regenesing, regenerating. New heaven, new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, remember Genesis 1 and 2, had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, the place, a place, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, the bride, the husband, all those motifs in here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see, finally and forever, God has achieved his purpose. This is what the Bible is all about. It is about the one purpose of the one God in his one people in one place being fulfilled. He begins it and introduces it in the first two chapters. Something happens in chapter 3 that causes him now to begin to, re, to move to reclaim, reclaim, reclaim through the pages of the New Testament until the old New Testament opens with this mighty display of the angels appearing to the shepherds. Behold, I bring you what? Good tidings of a great joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, the one who was prophesied from the beginning, the one who is talked about all the way through in shadow form. Finally, heaven and God the Father or joyful because now in man, my man is being born as a man and will be able through his death and resurrection to collect all of my people back to me. Finally, it's done. Amen. I'm finished. <laughs>